Welcome to Take Line. I am Jason Concepcion. It's wonderful to be back with you. Uh, I wish it was under circumstances in which there were less things happening in the world. Currently, uh, we are on day, uh, I want to say, six of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The uh, COVID rules continue to be in flux in New York City. Uh, and, uh, you know, the leader of a nuclear nation is uh, very casually threatening a nuclear war. It's very, very chill here today. But we have a great show. No Renee today. Uh, but today we're going to talk to Christian Winfield of the New York Daily News about New York City Mayor Eric Adams' recent comments on changes to the vaccine mandates in the city and how that might affect one person out of the 8 million people that live and work in New York City, Kyrie Irving, the point guard for the Brooklyn Nets. Tariq Panja of the New York Times, an author and a great reporter who studies the intersection of economics and football, that is uh, the European definition of the word football, meaning soccer, will join us to talk about how the conflict in Ukraine is causing chaos, not just in the economy, but also the sports economy, in particular uh, the plight of Roman Abramovich, who has attempted to hide Chelsea Football Club, like, in the garage, so uh, Boris Johnson can't steal it. Uh, fun show for you today. Let's get started. Joining us now is Tariq Panja, sports reporter with The New York Times and author of Football Secret Trade, How the Player Transfer Market Was Infiltrated. He's here to help us try to make sense of some of the fallout of the conflict in Ukraine and the sanctions imposed on Russia on the sports world, in particular uh, the football slash soccer world. Uh, Roman Abramovich over the weekend gave stewardship of his football club, Chelsea Football Club, to its charitable arm, uh, which is akin to like hiding like a hot handgun in someone's garage, I think. Uh, but we're here. But hopefully Tariq uh, can help us make sense of all this. Tariq, thank you for joining us. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, so Roman Abramovich, the Russian-Israeli uh, oligarch, billionaire, owner of Chelsea Football Club, uh, gas, aluminum and oil magnate, has handed off ownership, stewardship, a little fuzzy on what the what the actual meaning of this is to uh, Chelsea's charitable arm. What does this mean? Practically today, it means absolutely nothing. Okay. It, it, this, this, this has been a bit of um, a theatre. Roman Abramovich, of course, is one of the Russian oligarchs, as you mentioned, linked over the years to President Vladimir Putin and has been in Great Britain for since at least 2003, 2004, so almost two decades. And finally, the UK government, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is talking about issuing sanctions against Mr. Abramovich. His biggest property in the UK is his £1.5 billion investment in Chelsea Football Club. Now, with all that being said, what are you going to do? Oh, hang on, I've got an idea. I'm a distraction. <laughs> yeah, right. We've got a charitable arm here. Yeah. I'm just going to ask them to, to, to look after it. It's like getting, you know, going on holiday or going on vacation and saying, hey, I'm out of town for a few weeks because I'm on water the plants. That's what <laughs> That's it right. seems like. And, and, and also, he's still the owner. Right. He's still not selling it. His name's on the, on the, on the box. Now, none of this has also gone through yet. There is no guarantee that this charitable foundation 
can legally manage Chelsea Football Club under under UK charity law. So there's a lot to unravel here. Uh, let's zoom out to 30,000 feet for, for a second. You mentioned Roman's uh, ownership of Chelsea Football Club dating back to 2003. He was really not necessarily the first, but uh, perhaps the most well-known Russian oligarch to come to London, make a life there, uh, and, and uh, start spending a lot of money in, in the city. The The influence of Russian money in London has been a topic of much criticism and conversation uh, in the city and in the UK for a number of years. Is there a sense that he could actually lose the club? Certainly some of the, the statements coming out of the UK have been quite aggressive in terms of the assets that they're going to go after. We'll see if that happens. Mm-hmm. But I, this is the kind of thing that certain critics of London's relationship with Russian money have been asking for for a while. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't just call it Russia's Russian money. The, the London is just a city that is very permissive. Right. If you've got money... We don't care where it comes from. Please come here. Please spend your money. And we have all these kind of service, financial service companies, be they asset managers, lawyers, corporate public relations. We'll all polish your image as well. Um, you know, a lot of these Russian guys, not just Mr. Bramovich and not just Russian people as well, they've also got into philanthropy, funding the arts, funding colleges, a little bit like the Sackler family. In the yeah, US. Exactly like exactly the same, yeah. So so what what we're talking about, you're saying, you know, um with is there is there anxiety? I would say there is anxiety. If you're a Chelsea supporter, you've never had it as good in right. in the history of that club. Uh until Mr. Ramovich came there. They've won absolutely everything. They they have won two Champions League titles. That's the best team in Europe. Never happened before for Chelsea. They've won multiple English championships. They've had some of the best soccer players on the planet playing on the field. And that's all being funded through this guy's largesse. Now, why does he want to do that? That's that's the other question. He's been here for almost two decades. He's yeah. given one interview um, and, and <laughs> is, is like seen as a Mona Lisa figure in the stands. He, yes. he, he To be fair to him, he does... He's one of those owners. He's not an absentee owner. Oh, well, he, he he was someone who attended games a lot, and I think. And he some, looks like, and he looks like he lives and dies with every kick of the ball. You know, it's, it's uh, telecats of Chelsea Football Club over the years have. Uh, it's quite easy to see him. They often pan up to the owner's box, and you see him biting his fingernails, looking like yeah. he's you know he can't he can't stand to see what's happening. He's so he's so tense about the sport. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 so. The thing is, the Abramovich tension dates back a little bit further. There was a, a quite even saying this; it's just so bizarre. In 2018, two Russian yes. spies came to the English cathedral town of Salisbury and yes. tried to poison a former KGB agent um, and made an absolute mess of that. Almost poisoned the entire town and disappeared. Sergei Skirpal and his daughter Yulia with a, a, a nerve agent. That, that's right, that's right. And, um, uh, and uh, Dawn Sturgis, a local woman, ended up uh, dying uh, as a result of uh, finding a uh, discarded perfume bottle that had the nerve agent um, within it. So it was, you know, it's a national scandal. Can you imagine just something like that happened in the United States? You know, Russian agents coming in and, and essentially... Um, <laughs> covering a town in lethal poison, you know it, it's it's one for the one for the movies. But ever since Mr. Abramovich 
has been a, almost a persona non grata in, in the UK. Mm. So it dates back a little bit. We should add that that particular assassination attempt is on the heels of the the successful poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko with uh, polonium uh, in the UK and other over the years, I guess, unexplained and or mysterious deaths of Russian millionaires, billionaires, connected figures with that world. So uh, all of that is the case. You mentioned the players of Chelsea and how they've had... uh, since Roman Roman has taken over some of the best players in world football. Uh, and that is the case today. Is there any sense that Romelu Lukaku, Christian Pulisic, et cetera, are concerned about their pay packets? Like is, is, is Roman going to be able to fulfill his obligations uh, financially as the owner of Chelsea football club in the, in the days and weeks going forward as this, as this crisis continues? So far, we haven't seen any sign that he he hasn't or isn't. You know, these players are still being paid. Chelsea, uh, this Sunday, were in the the League Cup final, the first of the big trophies being handed out. They lost uh, in a penalty shootout there to Liverpool. Roman Abramovich, in in, in better days, would normally be inside that stadium. Like I said, since 2018, he obviously wasn't connected directly to any of that uh, attack. But because of his status... As a as a significant Russian, he's found it harder to do business in the UK and to enter the UK. To make to make that clear, so what what the question is what what is what is the repercussion at the moment? There there isn't any. Mm-hmm. Should should his assets be frozen? The, the big the big question for Chelsea isn't about his current assets. He his his funding of Chelsea has been an owner cash injection in the form of loans. Right, one point five billion pounds plus of loans. That's a lot of money, north of two billion dollars. He could ask for that back. Should he ask for that back, that club is in serious trouble. Now, that is what, if I was a Chelsea fan, I would be wondering about. But the thing with these big soccer teams in the UK, they are massive community assets. They are um, a, a kind of cathedral to thousands of supporters. Now, the government, I'm sure, would be wary of doing something that imperils the status of that football club. They might want him to go, and he may yet go somehow. But if I, I can't imagine right now the chaos that would ensue if someone arrived and put a lock and chain around Stamford <laughs> yeah. Bridge and right. said, you can't go in and you can't play football anymore because you can't pay your debts. FIFA announced recently that all Russian teams, uh, whether national representative teams, club teams, uh, shall be suspended from participation in both FIFA and UEFA competitions. This means essentially Russia is uh, kicked out of World Cup qualifiers. Spartak Moscow is the only Russian team currently involved in European competition in the Europa League. UEFA confirmed Monday that Spartak Moscow will be kicked out of the Europa League matchup with uh, Germany's RB Leipzig, and Leipzig will go on through to the round of 16 in that competition. This is truly a huge step for FIFA. I mean, you know you've really really done something when FIFA, of all groups, decides, okay, you've gone too far. We're going to kick you. We're going to kick you out of competitions. this is huge. What's been the fallout from from these decisions that are quite new, obviously? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned you mentioned FIFA, but again, FIFA can't seem to do anything right because <laughs> this comes a day after they already sanctioned Russia with 
penalties that included playing in neutral territory, playing under a, you know, a different name, playing without its flag and without its anthems or fans. That was the day before. And immediately, Poland, which was due to play Russia mm-hmm. in the World Cup qualifier Moscow, so we don't care where we are playing this so-called team, whatever you want to call them, we're not going to play. That Sweden and the Czech Republic, two teams that would have met the, the, the winner for that place in Qatar, followed suit very quickly. And then a bunch of other teams also said, by the, by the time, uh, you know, 12 hours later, I think there was at least a dozen, um, including the United States, England, Ireland, Iceland, saying, we're never going to play Russia under these circumstances. This is a country that's invaded uh, a fellow European country we're not going to play. And then what, what did change? What changed was the International Olympic Committee, another organization which has been yes. supine in the yes. face of <laughs> Russian cheating, doping over the years, decided it's had enough. Now, you know, parenthesis, this is after the Beijing Olympics, not before. Right, right. Um, there's nothing at stake for the IOC, <laughs> one could argue. Said, basically recommended that Russia and Belarus, a, a neighboring country, which has been a staging ground for Russian soldiers, should essentially be kicked out of global sport. That set the framework for what FIFA mm. then did. Now, let me ask, why did FIFA not do this one? Why did they get it wrong the day before? Like, it's got no halo effect. It's like, oh, well done. You've finally done the right thing, having screwed it up 24 hours ago. Uh, I, I would add to that also, with sanctions in place and with no flies in place for uh, for Russian commercial travel, it's it's unclear that Russian athletes would be able to travel outside of the country even. So it's not clear to me that, like, you know, I guess credit to FIFA for taking this step. It's unclear that the game could even be played because I don't think the athletes would be able to leave the country. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And that's something I was talking to people at UEFA about this, the European soccer governing body related to Spartak Moscow and the Europa League, saying they were due to play Leipzig mm. in the Europa League. Uh, Leipzig are based in Germany. You can't fly currently from Russia to 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 Germany. So so that that game was completely in peril. It's almost impractical, as you, as you said. So this decision almost had to happen. However, there is a wrinkle. There is a wrinkle. There always is with these things. Don't forget. Remember, we we wrote a headline. I remember this a few, four years ago saying. Russia is banned from the Olympics. Yeah, I remember that. Right? You, right. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember. I do remember that. Uh, you know, as a slight caveat, there was no active invasion of a sovereign country. Uh, hot invasion. You know, obviously the Crimea is a separate thing, but th- there was no active invasion going on. So maybe, you know, like uh, we give them a we give them a password. But yes, you're absolutely right. There was a there was a well-reported uh, story about the extensive Russian doping program that got them, uh, as far as we know, ejected from Olympic competition forthwith and for the foreseeable future. And that obviously did not hold. No, because uh, the thing with sport is there's always the last court of instance, which is this court of arbitration for sport in Lausanne, Switzerland. And Russia have done very well, I think, over the years to getting things either watered down or overturned. Mm. Uh, we had 200 plus athletes in Beijing, for example, at Olympics where Russia were banned. They were there without their flag and without their name and everything else. But Russia was up there in the medals table. Now, Russia already, within hours of the FIFA decision, have said, we're going to look at our legal uh, uh, chances here and we're going, probably going to end up in, in this court. Now, could this be, again, I've been doing this a really long time and there mm-hmm. is a cynical part to all of this. 
There is nothing in the rule book that says you, if you've invaded a neighbor, we can kick you out. Right. There just isn't. Uh, you know, you can look through this stuff. You can comb through it. I was talking to someone at the International Paralympic Committee, and they're worried about this because on Wednesday they got to decide whether they're going to throw Russia out or not as well, right? Now, if the Court of Arbitration says, sorry, guys, Russia are right, there's nothing in your rules that can punish them in this way. And they're going to say, oh, well, hi, guys. <laughs> hi, media. Hi, world. Hi, everyone who's so appalled by this. We tried our best. Right. And we, we, we can't do it. Now, I, I still, honestly, as you said, there is an invasion going on in Europe, which is bloody and just horrific. I still cannot believe that Russia will be allowed to play. However, I still see that they're, they're, they're going to try their luck. And, yeah. and it'll be interesting if we have this call again in a, in a couple of months. Well, I, I think the thing that that leads you to be cynical is the same thing that leads me to be cynical, which is that... Uh, we've seen and it's been demonstrated certainly over the last 20 years in uh, European football and, and, and indeed sport globally that money talks and it talks the loudest. Um, I wonder if you could talk for a moment about from a layman's perspective, someone who's just like a fan of the sport. It really felt like the arrival of Roman Abramovich on the scene changed the economics of football fundamentally. All of a sudden it was a arms race, a, a a money arms race in a in a different way than it was before when it used to be about you know finding the right player in some misbegotten league somewhere else and then uh, all of a sudden uh, you know th that changes the trajectory of your club now it was about can i spend the most money and assemble players the likes you know the 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 pay packet rates of which have never been seen altogether before um that changed football how will this if this these bands do indeed hold. Do you think it will? We'll see another shift in football to a more deflated economic picture. Yeah, it's interesting. Roman Abramovich certainly upended the way soccer economics worked because there wasn't anyone as wealthy as as an oligarch coming in buying the club with that wealth. Uh, I'll give you um, an example. I suppose David Dean was the vice chairman of Arsenal at the time. I miss him. I miss him every day <laughs> yeah. as an Arsenal fan. <laughs> and, and Arsenal were in relatively good shape there. They were competing yep. for the title with Manchester United. They had Arsene Wenger there um, and were about to move into um, a new stadium, the Emirates Stadium from, from Highbury, a modern stadium, and were, were well set to compete at the highest level with Manchester United for the foreseeable future. And then Roman Abramovich comes. And David Dean said this, we suddenly have a man who's arrived, he's parked his tank on our lawn and he's firing 50-pound notes out of it. And, and that, David Dean, is, is a very good orator, he's a really good speaker, and that imagery is exactly how it was. So here's this guy, and he completely inflated the market for uh, talent, how much you pay for, for a trade, transfer fees, and also the salaries. Yeah. Um, and, and as for Arsenal... I don't think they ever recovered. It's true. Um, uh, they, they didn't get to where a team of that standing, there wasn't, Chelsea was not considered a rival at that point. Now, what's happened since is not just Roman Abramovich, but we have now had nation states. I think he ushered in the era of, we have the brother of the ruler of the United Arab Emirates of yes. Manchester City. Mm -hmm. And that's another layer. That's a, that's a layer that even Abramovich can't, uh, for all his wealth, compete with. You have one of the world's richest countries using a Manchester-based 
soccer team as a um, signpost for whatever it wants to do. And it has spent an enormous amount of money, built a team through the um, genius, I suppose, of Pep Guardiola, but given him every single resource that is available to football. And then across the water in Paris, you have the state of Qatar having a kind of a Hollywood operation there, a, a more superficial uh, approach to club building, buying the best players, Neymar, killing Mbappe yes. and Messi, etc. Um, and then we have just this year or last year, Newcastle United being bought by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Now that is the big daddy of all of the Gulf. The big daddy. So yep. yeah, we're going to see. We're going to see. Um, I, I, you know, some some serious moves there. There have been efforts by the Premier League to introduce governance regulations. To let, but let's see, see if that holds. Abramovich going would be a huge sign and a blow for perhaps Chelsea supporters. But in terms of bringing a more rational approach to the game, I, I'm not so sure that's the reason why there would be one. Uh, finally, you, you wrote a story a couple of days ago that was published in the New York Times about uh, pro players, mostly from Brazil, um, but other countries as well, who are like uh, millions of others uh, stuck in Ukraine uh, and attempting to flee. Uh, tell me about uh, that story and how it came about. Yeah, so um, Brazilians in particular, I used to live in, in, in Brazil, so I, I, I still have connections over there. And um, I follow the social media feeds and the the, the Brazilians go everywhere in the world to play football. I mean, the smallest country, uh, the poorest country, if it's got a football league, you might find a Brazilian, you know, from the top to the bottom. And Ukraine pays good salaries, particularly at Shakhtar Donetsk, um, the team from, from Donetsk that was forced to play in Kiev because of um, an earlier kind of Russian-backed secession movement over there. Mm -hmm. And Dynamo Kiev, the, the kind of, a historic big team of, of Ukraine. They also have South American players and Brazilians. So war breaks out and they're there like everyone else. And they have family members with them, um, babies. There was yeah. three newborns in this group, um, wives, girlfriends and elderly relatives as well. So they were, I was talking to a, a fellow called Junior Moraes, who was at Shakhtar Donetsk and he was with 50 or 60 other people uh, at, at a hotel in Kiev. Uh, in this conference room, just just trying to escape, and they they were panicking. Bombs were going off. They could hear these, um, uh, you know, military jets flying overhead. Uh, the building shook a couple of times. He was telling me, uh, and they they required um, help from UEFA, European Soccer's governing body, FIFPRO, the Players Union, and the and the Ukrainian Football Association. It, 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 tell you what, it doesn't matter how rich you are. Moments yeah. like this, it is such an equalizer. They, they joined that mass of humanity trying to get to the train station and trying to get out west, um, out of out of Ukraine. They were the lucky ones. I've seen stories of of, of other players who aren't as well connected as maybe they are, um, huddled around uh, fires, freezing, uh, like like the last vast majority of the population. Yeah. Um, hey, one thing one thing that's really struck me and it's really sad um, here. A sad story among a lot of sad stories, is the difficulty black and brown. Yes. People are having uh, leaving the, the Ukraine and being accepted by those bordering countries. Um, and, it, you know, 
it's, it's horrific, being thrown off trains and not being allowed to cross borders. The government of Nigeria, uh, for one, has had to release a statement uh, uh, trying to smooth that situation and let its citizens that are there know that they should be allowed to pass through. We've seen uh, similar situations with uh, Indian nationals. It's bad. And it's there's uh, it's a very bad situation. It's unclear what reason those people are being held up. I think it's pretty clear why those people are being held up. I think it's clear as well, but it's unclear <laughs> to me what reason they think the border guards think that they have for doing that. It's very clear to me, obviously. Like, it's very clear yeah. that, hey, here's some brown people that don't look like Ukrainians. Uh, hold on, you can't leave yet. Uh, let's save some space for uh, the Ukrainians you're trying to flee. Uh, but yes, it's pretty cut and dried. And it's a horrible situation that I hope, I hope, uh, is being cleared up somehow. Yeah, and the thing I, I mentioned it because obviously uh, a lot of these footballers would have that appearance, and they, they aren't going to be the millionaires of famous people who play for Donetsk and Kiev. Yeah. There are second division teams um, in in Ukraine, and they are just a random looking black and brown person. He just happens to play football, and they are um, suffering out there. Let's hope something is 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 sorted out for them as quickly as possible. Uh, Tariq Panja, uh, his book. Uh, football Secret Trade, How the Player Transfer Market Was Infiltrated is available wherever you get your books. Uh, find his writing at the New York Times and elsewhere. Uh, Tariq, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So as you're surely aware, uh, Kyrie Irving, star point guard for the Brooklyn Nets, has not been able to play home games for the Brooklyn Nets basketball team. Uh, And that is because of New York City's vaccine mandates uh, that cover the citizens of New York City as well as employees of the city and uh, other private businesses and public spaces uh, to help us unpack the, some would call it Kyrie loophole and the intersection of sports and local politics and uh, public health is Christian Winfield and Bay reporter for the New York Daily News who covers the Knicks and Nets and has been covering all the developments, including recent comments by New York City Mayor Eric Adams that uh, popped off just this morning. Christian, thank you so much for joining Take Line. Man, when I tell you, I wish I paid a little more attention in political science class in college <laughs> now because I'm I'm over here on the phone with city hall people and they don't want to talk to me. It's 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 a headache, man. But that's that's where we are with this team. That's where we are. Okay, so uh, Eric Eric Adams uh, said this morning after in recent days seeming to signal that he'd like to see Kyrie on the court. He said, quote, it would send the wrong message to just have an exception for one player when we're telling countless numbers of New York City employees. If you don't follow the rules, you won't be employed. Now, uh, it seems like the vaccine and mask mandates are going to change next week. But where are we right now in terms of this situation with regards to Kyrie Irving? So Eric Adams is going to make an official decision on March 4th as to whether he's going to repeal the key to New York City vaccine mandate. But there's a second private sector vaccine mandate that will allow Kyrie to walk into Barclays Center and watch his teammates. He just won't be able to step out there and play basketball. And that's kind of one of the sticking points for the team because they're con- they're confused as to why Kyrie can't play, but 
opposing players with unvaccinated who are not vaccinated can come in and play. And, and we've seen Adam Silver come in and speak about this. But when you listen to the mayor and, and you, you hear his comments, he's saying, hey, as you mentioned, we don't want to send the wrong message because we're asking healthcare workers to get vaccinated. We're asking businesses and educators. All these people have to get vaccinated. Why do we want to bend the rules in favor of just one player? Yeah. And that's where we are. Yeah, this annoys me as well. Charles Barkley also, uh, before the All-Star game on TNT, was talking about how uh, this this loophole that uh, makes it so Kyrie can't play home games, but unvaccinated players coming from Indianapolis or sure. Charlotte could come in and play. Uh, Adam Silver said on February 16th, this law in New York, the oddity of it to me is that it only applies to home players. Now, here's the thing that annoys me, Christian. And now I'm just going <laughs> to vent at you, even though I had you on. <laughs> Charles is one thing. I feel like the commissioner could have at least laid out why it is the rule and the law appeared in the form that it took. New York City is most in its rights to pass laws that pertain to the citizens of New York City, right? It can't pass a law for somebody who lives in Washington State unless it wants to cut itself off of or unduly complicate movement of people from Washington State to New York City, right? It's just easier to pass the law for the people in New York State. We get it. Now, one of the really weird things about it is now all of a sudden Kyrie can't play home games when unvaccinated players from other places can come in and do it. Is that stupid? I guess it seems a little silly, but I would like to remind everybody that these rules were passed in the middle of a pandemic that was taking thousands of lives a day. We're up towards a million deaths because of this. And so it was like, the house was on fire. It's like, if I just dump water on all my belongings, that seems really dumb, unless the detail that's missing is the house was on fire. Now, all right. of a sudden, that makes sense. It just <laughs> feels like now I've just vented and I don't know that I have a question. But I guess I would ask, when the mayor says uh, about sending the message, why is it that Kyrie is being used, I guess, as the kind of leverage point in a rule that affects thousands, if not millions of other people? It just feels a little bit wrong to me. Is it silly that he can't play? I think it's a little bit silly. But are we not doing the most good with this particular rule, despite the fact that it's imperfect in the way that it interacts with one Kyrie Irving, multimillionaire NBA basketball player? Absolutely. You know, I think it's been pretty consistent from the city saying, hey, we want everyone to be vaccinated, right? And Kyrie is the only pro basketball player in New York City on either the Nets or the Knicks who has just decided not to get the shot. And this is what happens when you decide to not do that. Now, there is an exemption in this entire situation in one of these mandates that says people who don't live in New York City, Kyrie lives in New Jersey, right? right? People who do not live in New York City who are pro athletes don't have to follow the key to New York City mandate if it's repealed. The, the, the mandate is getting repealed, right? So it, it, there's another level of confusion here, that, and I've spoken with, with team officials where they don't think the city understands their own writing, right? And that's kind of where we are right now. They're trying to, everyone's trying to make sense of things that are just a lot complicated. So that, that's kind of, it's a, it's a waiting game. Yeah, another thing that I think is confusing about this, and again, I have some bit of empathy for city and state officials who tried to pass laws to serve public health in the middle of an emergency. Sure. Um, There is the other part of this, which is that the law at one point, it seemed like it would keep Kyrie from being able to go to practice, say the uh, the Brooklyn Nets practice facility. But then because that was deemed a private business, he is able to go there. Yeah. 
Why does that not apply then to the Barclays Center? That is an incredible question. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I would assume it's because, right. you know, practice is private. And at Barclays Center, you've got tens of thousands of attendees. Right. You've got fans who want to interact with these folks. But at the same time, no one, none of these fans are running onto the court. Right. You know, like the court, in, in essence, is kind of like the average fan, unless he's going to jump out like a football game and go streaking across the court, that's not going to happen. So it, that's kind of another area where a lot of people are confused as to what the actual spirit of this rule is. Because if Kyrie's the only unvaccinated player on the floor and he's testing daily, he's not he's not positive, and no one else is at risk because he's in this confined area and not interacting mm -hmm. with fans, then then in a way it's like, what are we actually doing here? Right. How much of this, this confusion is down to... A change of leadership, essentially. You know, Mayor de Blasio expended a lot of effort and political capital in various fights with city unions in order to get a lot of these rules uh, put in place. And now he is off the scene. And now Eric Adams comes in. Is something of an unknown quantity in the way he's going to run the city. How much of it comes down to that? Like Eric's just like the new guy on the scene and, and we don't know what he's going to do. L let me read a direct quote from Eric Adams this morning. He says, I don't know who thought about putting such a rule in place <laughs> okay, that well. unvaccinated players on away teams can come in here and guys from New York can't. So that goes to show you right there. He kind of inherited a lot, yeah. of, a lot of what he's in right now. And then he follows up and says, hey, I have to follow the rules. If I don't, I'm going to open the door that's sending the wrong message to everyday employees. So in a way, his hands are kind of tied. It's like, hey, this, this is kind of what I've inherited. But if there is this wording that says since Kyrie is from is living in New Jersey and he doesn't and these these mandates don't apply to people who are out of town. I think that's the route that the Nets are going to try to explore next is whatever kind of wiggle room they can find in that wording. With your conversations with City Hall and other city officials, do you, do you sense that there is going to be some empathy towards that position? no. No, no, no. I, I think that they want to, you know, and, and Eric Adams said it earlier this morning, he's kind of hardline on this dance. You know, it's they don't want to put out the, the message that, hey, you don't have to get vaccinated and you can right. loophole your way around the system because there are thousands, tens of thousands of workers who don't have the platform and the stature and the yep. money and the power that Kyrie Irving has. They don't want to cede to him and, and set a bad example for those guys. I've got family members who didn't want to get vaccinated and then right. had to because they would have lost their jobs otherwise. Right. So what kind of message are you sending to those guys? by letting Kyrie play. So I, I'm not sure that we see City Hall kind of bow down to one player. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, Nets owner Josiah was at, at one point in time pretty hardline about the issue of Kyrie participating uh, while being unvaccinated. He was, sure. he was very strongly uh, against it. Uh, sure. And that changed. What changed for the Nets that made them really soften their stance towards uh, Kyrie participating in games? Well, I'd say half the roster ended up testing positive for COVID. <laughs> and at that point, you know, the right. Nets said, hey, yeah. it's, it's a matter of continuity. We don't want to have somebody coming in and out of the lineup. But when you've got 10 some odd players going into, into the health and safety protocols, well, what exactly is continuity, right? And at that moment, it's kind of like, okay, well... You know, in my mind immediately goes, OK, you're going to have this unvaccinated guy come back in the middle of the biggest outbreak of COVID in the NBA. It's kind of negligent in a way. But at the end of the day, you know, if Kyrie wants to go out there and play, so be it. And then on top of that, you had players. You had Kevin. You had James. Yep. You had different players lobbying for the team to to actually let Kyrie play. So those those two things, those two factors, players going into health and safety protocols and then star players lobbying for Kyrie ended up getting back on the floor. So at at the moment, uh, the the Nets are sitting in eighth. 
would have to take part in the play in. Yeah. What what's they've obviously added Ben Simmons. He's not going to be available for a while. It's uh, the last last report was he's experienced some some back tightness as he works uh, back into uh, conditioning. <laughs> obviously, has not played all season. Right. Uh, What's the feeling around the team? Uh, I, I would imagine there's there's just so much uncertainty. But you know, what's the feeling around the club about the weeks ahead as they head into uh, the postseason? Well, the Nets just got a huge victory against the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, really beat them on their own home floor. You remember yeah. what happened last year that the yep. Bucks sent them home in the playoffs? And you know, shoot around this morning, I asked Bruce Brown, "Hey, does this show you?" Or does this give you more confidence in what you guys might be able to do when you have all your pieces together? And he goes, yeah, I think we're going to be scary. And that's exactly why. And when you consider no Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant, I think is going to come back for that Miami game after these two Toronto games coming up. So that's Thursday. Uh, Eventually, you're going to welcome Ben Simmons in. It might not be before the Philly game. I know fans are going to say he's ducking that game. But back soreness, conditioning, whatever you want to call it, he might not play in that game. And now it looks like Joe Harris is ramping up that he might not have to get that second surgery. And if you add all that up, combined with Andre Drummond, combined with Seth Curry, adding Goran Dragic, you've got a very complete team led by, I mean, Kevin Durant when he's healthy, I don't know where you have him. He's at least one of the top two players in this NBA. This team is confident, and, and I think they should be. So it's 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 a, it's a long road. you got a short schedule to put it together, but they're confident that they can do it. My conspiracy theory, which uh, the, the listeners of Take Line have heard me spout uh, uh, before, is that the Nets obviously were not incentivized to have home court. Exactly. And, that, and to a certain extent are comfortable being down here at the, at the, in the lower echelons of the bracket going forward. I think that that's probably the case. Would you not say? Christian? Yeah. You know, fans tried to kill me early when I said they should intentionally tank so they don't have home court advantage. But here's where it gets tricky. If you end up in that play-in tournament game and you lose that first game, if, you lo- if you're if you eighth seed and you lose that 7-8 game, now you've got home court advantage against yeah. the 9-10, right? <laughs> yeah. And if, that, if you're playing against Trey Young in that second game and you don't have Kyrie, that could go either way. So I don't know. I think the Nets want to get out of, out of that play-in, but they're just too far behind the Celtics, I think, to make it happen. Uh, what does your gut tell you? Uh, Eastern Conference Finals is a matchup between who? Oh, the Nets and the Sixers. I, I think we're going to see that. I think that I think the basketball gods are just waiting for that moment. And you just look at the way James Harden, Joel Embiid pair together. Oh, it was scary. I mean, yeah, that's that's it, bad. It was and really then, scary. And then if you look at. To be honest, I think Andre Drummond, and it's crazy to say that he fixes so many of this team's issues. When you look at the rebounding, the paint presence, just the lob threat, you know, Seth Curry with no with no Joe Harris, he fixes that. Mm. And to be honest, Kevin Durant, I watched Kevin Durant go on the floor with four rookies and beat the, the Philadelphia yeah, 76ers. That's very true. So I mean, he gives you a chance to win anytime. So I'm looking forward to that matchup. And on top of that, if the Nets do finish seventh or eighth, they're gonna end up drawing either the the Heat or the Bulls, or maybe the Bucks, if they win enough games, I think we're going to see Sixers and Nets in the Eastern Conference Finals. I think the basketball gods won't have it any other way. He's Christian Winfield. You can find his uh, Knicks and Nets coverage at the New York Daily News. Christian, thank you so much for joining Take Line. Thanks for having me, man. Anytime. That's it for us. Follow and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to subscribe to Take Line Show on YouTube for exclusive video clips from this episode, plus my digital series, All Caps NBA, which comes out every Friday. Check it out, folks. See you next time. Let's go!
Take Line is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Ryan Wallerson and Zuri Irvin. Our executive producers are myself and Sandy Gerard. Engineering, editing, and sound design by the great Sarah de Alaska and the folks at Chapter 4. And our theme music is produced by Brian Vasquez. Mia Kelman is on the Zoom for Vibes, and the vibes are fantastic all the time. 